Okay, so we're in a series talking about firsts. And um, last week, um, Pastor Dave opened the series and he was, he was talking about, um, one of the ideas he talked about was priorities. We, we, we talk about your priorities, like that can be a plural thing, that there can be um, multiple priorities at, at one time, but really by definition, a priority is, this is at this time, this is the one thing that comes first. It, it's number one in what's important, number one in how I give it my time, number one and all of that kind of thing. And so you can't prioritize multiple things at one time. And I think for a lot of us, one of the great tensions of our life is, well, how do I manage my life then? Like, how do I, because there are a number of things that are important to me and I know that are supposed to be important to me. How do I manage this? And for me, this has really been this, the tension point for me in my morning routine. I feel like there is always something that is slipping. I'm either in a season where like my devotional life is really good and I'm, you know, regularly working through my devotional and spending time in, like, centering prayer. But if I'm in that space, exercise, not happening at all. <laughs> but there'll be another time where I'm like, yeah, regularly going for a run, doing some stretching, my body's feeling great. Am I praying much? No. Oh, I'm reading the Bible. I'm either, like, reading through the Bible really well, but I'm not exercising and I'm not praying. And it's just like, I just kind of rotate between. So this is why we look at our things over the whole year. But I don't know, does anyone else feel like that? It's like, how do I, like, I also have a job, and I do have, like, people I need to look after, and I want to help, you know, people in my, love my neighbor, and I want to love God, and like, ah, it's a, it's a challenge. And so the question I've got, you know, that we're going to sit with a bit today is, you know, what does it mean to put God first? And why do we find it so hard to get our priorities straight? Why do we find it so hard to shape our lives around the things that we would say, if we really thought about it, that we're a priority. Because really, if, if you look at how you spend your time, for example, that says to you what your priorities are. But often that wouldn't really match up. Like if you did one of those, has anyone ever done a time log? Horrifying exercise. You're like, how did I possibly spend that much time eating? <laughs> Making coffee, like, oh, looking at my phone, watching TV. If you did that, that says actually what's important to you. But you might not really want to say out loud, yeah, those things are important to me. Like, not that eating, eating is a, a priority, and you should definitely prioritise that. But today we're looking at this through the, um, going right back to the beginning, to Genesis 4, which is the story of Cain and Abel, the, uh, the first and one of the greatest moments of sibling rivalry. rivalry. So we've got the scripture up. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Keep going. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? I love it how God asks questions. It's like, God doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. He's just trying to draw them out, like you do with your kids. Uh, if you do not, he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Unfortunately, Cain does not take this caution. And he, he proceeds with his brother. So verse 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Ooh. Next slide. 
And then the Lord said to Cain, again, not asking really for information, but opening a conversation, where is your brother Abel? And Cain was like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And he goes on to talk about the consequences that Abel is, um, that Cain is going to face for having murdered his brother. Now, this is a really brief passage for what could have been a lengthy and juicy series on Netflix. Like, this could stretch over seasons. And the scriptures just like super be like, what happened in the field? What, what, how did that play out? Like, what was the origin story? Like, I'm so curious. I've got so many questions here. I feel like it escalated very quickly from a, Cain was downcast and he's killed his brother. And so today we're going to do a little bit of digging a bit deeper to, okay, what was actually going on here? Why was, what was the difference between what Cain offered and what Abel offered? Is it just that God doesn't like vegetables as much as he likes meat? I think it's got to be more than that. Dig a little bit deeper into the text, some other scriptures. But we're also going to do a little bit of work to imagine what it might have been like and what it might have been going on in Cain's heart. And the cool thing is that you're actually allowed to use your imagination when you're reading scripture. And for some of us, that goes quite contrary to stuff that we've been taught. But I've just taught a class last week um, in formation. One of the practices we talk about is imaginative contemplation. You take a scripture, a passage of scripture, and you just sit, you chill with it, and just imagine, I wonder what it would be like? What would it have smelled like? What would it have felt like when all of this kind of thing? And you, and you, you go into it, you enter into it with your whole imagination. And it, you're allowed to do that. I mean, like, don't then base like doctrine out of your imaginations. That's, that's not found. But it, you're allowed to fill out a lot of the scripture because sometimes we read the scripture and we're like, oh, yeah, Cain did that, Abel did that. We forget that they were real people with complicated backstories and stuff going on in their heart. They're not that different to you and I. People's hearts haven't really changed that much. And so you can fill it out a little bit. You want your imagination, yes, to be informed by scripture to be shaped by the Spirit, so be praying around that kind of thing. But if you haven't taken that approach to reading Scripture before, then I would recommend it to you. But let's sit, we sit in Scripture. In Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, the writer says, By faith Abel brought, brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. So a better offering, what does that mean? It's well, if you, if you go into the word, it's better, it's more acceptable, it's, it's kind of a vague still. But what was the difference? Why did God reject Cain's offering but take pleasure in Abel's? Well, I had the luxury of asking. I work with a lovely man who's an um, academic in the Old Testament. So I said, Richard, could you just like, what do you think about this? And he went away and read some, sat with the scripture and uh, gave me a little like overview of some articles on it, which was very helpful. Very helpful. And he, he brought out a couple of ideas for me. One of the particular ideas is that this, this thing that Cain and Abel offer to God, um, it's the, the Hebrew word is minha, it's a tribute. It's a gift that you would give to acknowledge the superiority of the, the person who's receiving it. So it's the kind of thing that would happen if, if you were a nation and another bigger, bossier nation had taken over you and you had to get, pay them tribute so if Australia took over New Zealand, they said, you can keep being New Zealand, 
but you need to pay us X amount of dollars just to recognise that we are superior over you. That's the kind of thing this tribute was. So when they're giving a tribute, they're offering something that's saying, you're bigger, we depend on you, we've got to keep things right with you. So that's kind of the background to it. But there's two, two kind of key ideas when it distinguishes it. So Abel brings the firstborn. He sees it brings him the firstborn of his flock. Cain, in the course of time, in the King James Version, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought his offerings. Now the vibe of this phrase is, in the course of time, my teenager brought her dirty dishes from her room and placed them in the dishwasher. Did she do it when she had finished with the dishes? No. Did she do it, I'm sorry my love, did she do it when I asked her to do it? No. Did she do it when I reminded her to do it? But no, but in the course of time it came to pass that she placed the dishes in the dishwasher. There is no immediacy to it. There is no great intention. But it did happen eventually. And that's not like that's not obedience, is it? Delayed obedience is is disobedience. Just saying. Just saying. So there's there's a there's a difference there. And I wonder what that difference is. I wonder what that difference is. I wonder. I used to think it was maybe that just Cain was a bit disorganized. Possibly there's that. He's like, oh, I've been meaning something I've been meaning to do. I haven't got any reminders set up. I haven't invented iPhones yet, but what's something I was gonna do? Oh, it's gonna take an offering. But I wonder if there's something else going on. Maybe he was like, I've got to make sure we've got enough. Got to make sure I've gathered enough that we're going to be all right before I give something to God. I wonder there's a bit of fear going on there. The other difference it describes in the scripture, um, it says, verse 4, Genesis 4, um, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, some of the fruits, some of the, you know, what the ground grows, some of the veggies, some of the grain. But Abel brought the fat portions. So the fat portions, you know, we think like, oh, fatty meat, that's not good. But in this back time, like fat, you know, there's not much going around. So the fat portion is the best bit. It's the most succulent bit. It's the juiciest bit. Whereas Cain is like, oh, well, I've grown some cabbages. I'll just have that one there. Rather than being like, that cabbage, that is the ideal cabbage. You know, even veggie growers here, sometimes you grow a vegetable and you're like, that is what it's about. And you're like, that's going on the gram. You see my Instagram, it does feature vegetables I'm proud of. That is not what Cain did. He just took some. Oh, yeah, one of those cabbages. I'll oh, give him the crappy one, that one that's got all the bugs in it because I'm growing things organic. <laughs> it doesn't mind. That's, that's the kind of vibe. That's a contrast that the scripture is setting out. And the idea, and this is what Richard said to me, that Cain's gift is a token. It's a token gift. Now, we all know what a token gift is. You know, if you can think of a time you've been given a token, sometimes there's been where I've done a thing for a person, uh, like a come and talk at a thing, and they give you an envelope afterwards sometimes, and sometimes there's something in the envelope. Because right? sometimes you know, if you go, you're a guest speaker, like I don't get paid for that, I'm not on a salary for doing anything. Uh, and you've, maybe you've put a couple of hours in preparing it, you've driven an hour there, driven an hour back, you know, so it's taken a bit of time to give you an envelope. Sometimes there's a gift card in it. Sometimes there's just a card. And you're like, oh, okay, it's fine, because you're not doing it for the money. 
but you're kind of like, okay. You you like had a few of those. This is mm, a token. Like just don't don't bother. Like if it's just going to be a token, don't bother. Yeah, which is fine. Like I'm, I'll receive any gifts. Let's be honest. (laughs) Just really appreciate it. That's not what I'm saying. Just trying to illustrate what a token is. But that's not like when you're giving a tribute to recognize, okay, you're bigger than me. I honor you. A token is not appropriate. But what's interesting is it's actually not so much about the gift. It's about the heart of the giver. So back in Genesis 4 to 5, it says that Abel and his offering and Cain and his offering. Uh, So the Lord looked with favor on Abel and on his offering. The Lord did not look with favor on Cain and his offering. It's not just like, oh, I liked Abel's gift, therefore I liked Abel. It's I like Abel and his gift. It's not I don't like Cain's gift, therefore I do not like Cain. It's, oh, Cain, and your gift, yeah, (laughs) come on. And when, and again, like I want to bring out that when God comes to Cain and says like, you're obviously upset. Like, I don't know, how did, how did they know what God's favor was? It's not clear to us. There is a sense, you know, there records dialogue. So even though they're not living in the Garden of Eden anymore, obviously God is still pretty close to them. God just says, you know, why are you angry? What's going on? Well, let's dig into your issues here. Let's talk about your heart. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, I'm going to punish you or anything like that. There's an openness. Let's talk about what's going on here. But Abel, Cain does not receive that. He, he ends up. He ends up down a track where he ends up murdering his brother. But the important idea, it's not so much about the thing. It's about the heart and the attitude behind it. And this comes out really clearly in Mark 12, where um, Jesus is at the temple one day with his disciples, and they're observing people having an offering, uh, putting their money in the offering. And this was like, like no one would do this. Any, nowadays, maybe they do. It's a big like, container, and people come up, and they put their money in, and it clinks according to how much money you've put in, and you can do that, putting this one in, putting this one. Yes, it's taking me so long because I'm giving so much money. And they see someone who's doing that, giving with a great parade. And then they see another woman come up who's a, she's poor, she's a widow, and she puts in two cents. And Jesus says she has given a lot more. Now, obviously, she hasn't actually given a lot more. Like She's given a whole lot less. But in terms of what she's actually given of her heart, she's given a lot more. So there's no sense in which you can look at the gift that a person gives. Whether we're talking about financial gifts, or whether we're talking about the time that someone commits to something, or the, how encouraging their words are, whatever the expression of giving is, you, comparison is completely illogical. It's not how it works. It's about the heart. But there is the fact that what's in your heart is expressed in your gift. There's a little bit of discernment that needs to go in there. The heart is expressed in our actions, but the nature of the gift reflects the heart that brings it. So there's never a situation with God where you're going to find yourself being like, here you go, God, I think this is what you want, and be like, God's going to be like, no, that wasn't what I wanted. And you're like, oh, well, I didn't even know. I was trying to get it right. That's not how it works. God's not going to be like, you're not going to be surprised that you haven't given God something appropriate because it's about your heart, and you know what your heart is, mostly. So what was wrong? What was wrong with Cain's attitude? Like I said, I'd always assumed that he maybe just a bit callous, but disorganized, lazy, apathetic, didn't really care, just didn't get round to it. 
You know, like your kid with the dishes. It's not that they, you know, like having, well, they probably don't like having a tidy room. I'm not sure. I don't understand it. I'm sure I know I was that child also myself. But it's, it's more than that. It's not just that, oh, I yeah, just didn't really get to it. Because Cain obviously does care about his relationship with God. Because uh, I stopped reading through Genesis 4. Um, but the next bit, Cain says back to God, he says, this punishment, this separation from you, it's more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. And God goes, no, 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 I'm going to look after you. And yeah, you've, like, you've killed your brother, so like, you can't hang out with us, this group of people anymore. You need to go off. Cain is just, he's upset that he's going to be hidden from God's presence. So Cain does love God. He does love God. But there was, I mean, there was obviously some issues going on there. Like, clearly. And this is where I reckon a really good, juicy Netflix series could be developed from it. Like, there's a lot of material to work with. We don't need to, like, keep just going through, like, superheroes. Just go back to the Old Testament. Flesh it out. Because you see with Cain and Abel, there's this, you know, something happens. Cain goes into a sulk. And there's this confrontation in the field with his brother, and he kills him in anger. And, well, maybe it's premeditated. I don't know. It's what's, what's worse? And then he hides, and there's a super defensiveness. Like, no, I don't know where my brother is. It's not even my problem. There's this, um, you can see the power of shame at work in Cain. And shame is incredibly powerful in our lives. It separates us from God. It separates us from each other. And it is just so vocal in our thought life. But God never brings shame to Cain. He tells it how it is, but there's never any shame that comes with it. And I don't think it's just that Cain missed the memo that this was really important to God. It's not like, I just didn't get that email, went straight to the spam. Maybe, but maybe not. I reckon part of it comes back to the idea that I described before about the tribute, that it's you're doing this thing to recognise um, this other power as being bigger on you. It's, a, it's I recognise my dependence on you, is what the tribute says. I recognise that I depend on you. And Cain, I think, didn't recognise his dependence on God. He didn't have an understanding that all of his work, all of his labour... The, the harvest that was produced by that, the fruits of the soil, actually, they were from God. He didn't have that understanding that um, he depended on his creator. He was, God is the one who made, like, you didn't grow those veggies yourself, right? Like, yes, you planted them. You were the ones who put them in the ground, but you did not make them grow. Because I'm going to be honest, if it was me that just, like, made it grow, they would grow a lot better, often, <laughs> rather than be like, well, I guess I'll give that to the chickens, Brussels sprouts, planted Brussels sprouts. Have I eaten a single Brussels sprout? No. Have I attended, attended to them carefully? No, also. But you, you have to recognise your dependence. And that's a, like an incredibly difficult thing, I think, for us in our day and age because there is so much messages that are sent to us about you make your own life. You make your own life up. It's about your hard work. That, you know, and there's this whole thing like, oh, you've got good things in your life, it's because you worked hard for it. And often that is the case, yes? You actually do have to do the work, um, but it's not all about what you do. It's not all about your you're, you're doing it from within yourself. There's a sense of recognising your dependence on God. I think for myself, like, yep, 
finished a PhD, that's great. Yes, I did an awful lot of hard work to finish that, but I didn't make that happen by myself. You know, all the things that you manage to do or achieve, God has given you the gifts to be able to do them. You're good at your job? Well, God, God's the one who gave you the gifts that, to be good at that job. You're a hard worker? Well, he building you a hard work ethic. You know, whatever it is, you're, oh, I'm talented at this. Yes, you put the hours of practicing on the keyboard, but God has also given you a gift to do that. You're a great singer. God has given you a gift. It's a gift he hasn't given to all people. It all comes from God. It does. And But something interesting that really was twigged in my thinking as I was listening to Dave preach last week, and I really enjoyed his word, particularly when he was speaking from Matthew 6. Um, and there's this fascinating passage where I used to read it and think like, this is really not flowing together, Jesus. Like if I'm, you know, trying to write an essay or something, you want to flow from one idea to the next, this is just like chopping and changing. What are you doing here? He talks about don't store up treasures on earth. Instead, store your treasures in heaven. You know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he talks talking about your eyes. And if your eyes are good, your whole body will be filled with light. And if your eyes are bad, your body will be filled with darkness. And then we're on to this next idea. You can't serve two masters, can't serve God and money. And then he goes over to starting with talking about worry. Like, you are, what is, like, what's happening here, Jesus? We want a coherent train of thought, please. But actually, they are... They are. They do go together. There's a sense of, yeah, where your treasure is, your heart is, what is, um, what you're putting your work into reflects where your heart is at. But it's not talking about your eye, and this is a hard one to get because it's a little bit weird, the, the context. Like we don't think about light coming into our body through our eyes anymore. We've got a bit more of an understanding of how bodies work. Um, but the idea around it is that good perception, the way you perceive things, brings light and goodness into your whole being. Perceive things wrongly, they bring bad things into your whole being. So your perception of things. And then it's kind of this idea of having two masters, who you serve. How you see things shapes who you serve, whether you're serving God or whether you're serving mammon or money. And that is tied. And then he says, therefore I tell you, because of all this stuff, that's why I'm going to say to you, don't worry about your material needs. So Dave was preaching this last week, and I was always, um, as I'm listening to a sermon the week before the next time I'm preaching, i am always kind of got one one part of my mind thinking about the next one. And I was thinking about the story of Cain and Abel in light of what Dave was saying. And I can imagine Cain being racked with worry. I, get him, he says a kid, he's born outside of the Garden of Eden and his parents would have told him about this place, this amazing place where they never had to do any work and they just ate fruit off trees. It was great. And gardening was just really pleasant. But now they've got to work the land to make it work. And you know, getting the, like, he'd have to labour and labour and you plant seeds and maybe they grow and then they don't, you know, they die and then there's blight and you get some, will there be enough? And then winter is coming. Will there be enough to go through? Will I have enough to feed my family? Do my parents like me as much? Will they be impressed with how I'm doing? Like, you can imagine there's a whole lot of stuff going on. There might, I need to stockpile. I can't, and until I've got enough, I, when I'm sure I've got enough to last me through the winter, when I'm sure the harvest has been taken in well enough and well-preserved, or I don't know, not really an expert on ancient agricultural techniques, then I, then I will do it. Maybe there was a fear. I, I need to look after myself. I need to look after myself. Or maybe I need to look after my family first. 
And that's coming back down to I, I can't trust God to take, fear, to take care of me. Because giving up part of your harvest is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. And in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abel gave that, that fir- he gave the first and the best to God. And the reality is that tithing, for example, is an act of faith, saying, I trust you, God, to take care of me. I acknowledge my dependence on you, that I didn't make this happen for myself. I acknowledge that I can't make it happen for myself. Therefore, I take this portion of my income and I give it to you, God. I trust that you are going to make it and you're going to take care of me. And that's really difficult sometimes. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, it's really difficult. A few years back, um, I can't remember what the preaching was about. I think it must have been you, Dave, preaching again. And you were talking about from the scripture of Ephesians, or is it Ephesians 4, talks about how Jesus makes his home and us, and the metaphor of the, the rooms in your house that you invite someone to. So, you know, your guest comes to your house, and there are, like, guest-approved areas that they can visit. It's really weird if a guest that go, walks into your bedroom. That's, that's not appropriate. Uh, and your junk room, like, who's got a junk room? Yeah? Yeah? Don't go in the junk room. But, you know, if there's somebody who knows a bit better, they can, like, you know, your kids, they just get to go and walk in. I go back to my parents' house, and i am got full access to the fridge because I'm, I'm a child. And so anyway, in this sermon, um, Dave was talking about it, and we spent some time just responding to God. And, and I think the question was, what, what is the room of your house that you're, you're, not, you're not wanting to invite Jesus into? And oh, I so clearly heard the pantry. You don't want to let me into the pantry. And at this time, we had this, um, this incredible walk-in pantry, like it was, it was yours, and you could, you could hide in it, which was great if the kids were playing hide-and-seek, but also great as a parent if you were playing hide-and-seek, and they didn't know that you were playing hide-and-seek, you were just hiding. Uh, because you could close the door. And yes, the light was off, but there was enough light filtering through that you could locate the chocolate. So you could just, it's just like, oh, where's mum? And the kids were like, where's mum? I don't know, where's mum? It was a great place. Um, and it was. It was like a we storehouse. And God, God said to me, you, you, are, you don't want to invite me into the pantry because the pantry for you is your, yeah, I've got enough. I've got enough to get by, to feed the people. I've got, you know, like if we had an apocalypse and the supermarkets were closed, you could survive for a while. There'd be a lot of pasta, but, you know, it'd be fine. And, and, what the, and using that illustration, the Holy Spirit really put his finger on the fact that I had a fear that there wasn't going to be enough to go around. Not as so much like cans of chopped tomatoes, but more there wasn't going to be enough of me to go around, enough time or enough energy or resources or whatever it was. And there was this deep kind of rooted fear for me. And I can imagine, that's probably the same for a lot of you, I can imagine it being the same for Cain. I've got a stockpile. This is my, like, buffer, God. And when I'm confident in my buffer, then I'll give you the tribute. But it's around the wrong way, because it's, again, I'm trying to make it happen for myself. But the difficulty is that sometimes life has taught us the opposite of what is true. For many of you, you've had life experiences that have taught you, you need to take care of yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. And that is... That is been your experience. And so that is what feels, that's the feeling you get. And the, the thing is that, that feelings do not always tell us the truth. 
this morning. Um, Ida is coming out with some crackers at the moment. And she said, just a bit sad before breakfast, what she really just needed was some food. But she said, Mum, in my feelings, I feel like other people... Other people are lucky because other people give them things and they have things. And she started crying, weeping. It's like, baby girl, what? Like, this is, makes no logical sense. You have so much stuff. It's like too much stuff. We are chucking out a lot of your stuff before we move. Lack of stuff is not the issue here. But, you know, and I said to, and I, so I said to Tessa, I said, do you think that's true? Do you think, like, that's, yes, you're feeling that, Ida. But do you think that feeling is telling you the truth? We said, no. Have some breakfast, and then you will feel fine. But sometimes that, that, in your feelings, in your feelings inside of you, you feel. But that feeling might not be telling you the truth. And what life has taught you is not necessarily what is true. Um, in e-group this week, we talked about um, the importance of recognizing your dependence on God. And, and one of my friends there shared about how when things are going okay for her, like when things like in life are okay, she just keeps God at arm's length. And then ultimately things don't go that well. That's the cycle, pretty much how it goes. But when things are not going okay, when there's pressure on or something's happening with one of her kids or at work or whatever, she's like, oh God, I need you so much. And she, she draws really close to God and she finds everything she needs and things actually go all right. But then things are going okay, so God's at arm's length. And this is kind of like, she was saying, like, you think I would have recognized this cycle by now, but still this is the thing that is, that is going around in me. When we know we need God's help, we recognize our weakness, we depend on God, and we find ourselves to be strong in him. 2 Corinthians 12.10, one of my favorite verses, for when I am streak, so, sorry, when I am streak, ah, for when I am weak, I'm not going to streak, fear not, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Or as the Passion Translation says, my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. A portal is a, um, something that features often in imaginative games in our home. It's like a portal to another world. You walk through and there you're a unicorn or something like that. A portal is like a gateway. Your weakness is a gateway to God's power coming into your life. And the reality is, newsflash, being dependent on other people and on God, is, it's an okay and it's, it's actually how things are. Actually, the truth of your life is that you are dependent on God. You are dependent on other people. You can't make it happen for yourself. You can fool yourself for a while, but eventually things come along. You have a health crisis. A relationship falls over. You lose your job. And then you realize, oh, I cannot make this happen for myself. But all the time, it's when, it's when we're living differently, I think we're, we're fooling ourselves. Um, and the difficulty is that the world... Uh, the devil and just even our own flesh are consistently bombarding us with lies about how we should pull away from our relationship with God. And one, I think one of the key things around them is that you don't actually, you don't need him. You're not actually dependent on, you can make it happen for yourself. And yeah, maybe if there's extra to go over, then you could give that to him. But actually, God is the source of every good thing we have in our lives, and we need to recognize that by our dependence on him. And just this morning in prayer meeting, um, Richie shared a scripture that actually had been my um, scripture I was spending time in devotionally this morning because I wasn't running, so I was doing devotional prayer. Like. 
It'll, it'll switch again. Um, I was talking from Matthew eleven twenty nine, and Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart. I was struck by that line. God is gentle, and he is humble in heart. He could be aggressive or harsh and lord it over us, our dependence on him. And that was usually the way that, that this kind of tribute offering, if you're thinking back to that nation-between-nation thing, or even, like, powerful family. Like, I don't know, there's probably, like, mob family metaphors that you could draw out here. You know, you need to pay so much for protection, you know, that you're dependent on them. If you don't pay them the money, you will, what's the phrase, like, sleep with the fishes? You'll wake up and there'll be a horse's head in your bed. And some of you are like, what are you talking about? Has no one watched The Godfather? <laughs> Not that I'm recommending that as approved viewing, but there's a harshness normally to this kind of tribute. But God is gentle and he is humble in heart. And his response that he has to Cain, even after he has killed his brother, God seeks out Cain and says, where's your brother? What's going on? And there was an opportunity there for Cain to go, oh God, I've done something terrible. There was an invitation again, but Cain refuses it. He defends it because shame is so powerful. And that's why we need to be so careful to not let shame be in our communities. Totally. But one other thing I want to I land on, if, Kirsten, if you could come up, it would be great. Um, is that there's this real tension between what's in my heart and the things that I do. So I've said, you know, with the example of the, um, the rich Pharisee or whatever, gave lots and the widow didn't give, give that much. You can't look at the action and compare. But you can look at yourself. Like you can't compare between people. You can't say, oh, what Luke gives versus what Dave gives in terms of time to pastoral care at church. Well, that would be a ridiculous comparison because I was the pastor and he's paid for hours and Luke works a very busy job, looks after the whole city. You can't also, just no pressure, no pressure there. You also can't compare between different seasons of your life. You cannot, and this is something that we get sucked into. I think especially for women, when the seasons of your life change drastically, you are working lots and then you have a baby and then that does this and then you what, how does this go? And then I'm working, I'm working. You compare, I used to do this. And now I do this, and why can I not do the same? Why can I not give the same? Why can I not give of my time? I'm giving is very broadly interpreted here. You can't compare between different seasons of your life. You can't compare across other people. You can't go, oh, my sister does that, therefore I should do that. Or someone else in my position. It's not, it's foolishness. Stop doing it. Ha, if only it was that easy. <laughs> but you can look at what you are doing now and see how what you're doing is reflected by your heart. And you can actually shape your heart by the things that you do. And this is the power of the spiritual disciplines. We did a great series, I think last year, called Practice Makes Perfect. One of the key ideas of that is that you can't try to do be more patient, for example. But there are things that you can do to train yourself to be more patient. And equally, there are things that you can do that will cultivate within you a dependence on God that's going to be the portal to power. Like, the portal to power? It sounds like, man, that should be the title. I was waiting for a title for the sermon. 
portal to power. (laughs) The portal to God's power for you is recognising your dependence on Him. And that's hard because the world is throwing messages at you about how you have got what it takes and you can do it and you can do it by yourself because you're an individual unit, blah, blah, Western individualism, modern enlightenment, rationalism, rubbish. It's not true. You don't have what it takes. Sorry. You don't. By yourself, you don't have what it takes. You have more of what it takes when you're in a community with other people and you actually have what it takes when you're in a relationship with God. But pretending otherwise does not take you into good places. Have tried, personally, does not take you into good places. So what are the things that you can do? What are the things that cultivate the access to the portal to power? Tithing. Tithing is a profound act of faith. It's a profound proclamation that says, God, I need you. I recognise my dependence on you. I recognise my dependence on you putting a devotional time at the beginning of your day. Like, I know you're not all morning people. I'm sorry for you. I am a morning person. But putting it first is good. And Lisa, I can be honest. If, if morning is not best, then give him some other time that is best. Yeah? I think it's, I don't know, it's probably difficult. I can't relate to you people who are good at staying up late and just fall asleep. But for some of us, when is the best of your time of day. For many of us, it's the morning, but for others of you, it might be later at night. Give him that time. Give him that time. For me, choosing to pray at the start of my workday rather than diving into my to-do list is a profound declaration of my dependence on God. Because I come in and my app is like, these are the list of things that you've planned to get done today. It's completely unrealistic. And so you go, I better get started. But if I say, actually, I'm just going to put aside five minutes to pray, that's me saying, I depend on you, God. Praying before problem solving. Oh, I've got this problem. What am I going to do? Blah, 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 blah. Just going to start Googling some solutions. I'm just taking a moment to pray first. Praying first. Prioritizing gathering together with the body of Christ. Things like this. Prioritizing that says, I need community. Making time to be, have a coffee with a friend, to be to at ego. Prioritizing those relationships is acknowledging I depend on the people in my world that God has placed in my world. Giving your time and your talents to serve the people in your church is again saying, I depend on this community. Like, I can't get by. I can't get by without this group of people in my world. I don't know how non Christians do it actually genuinely confused. So all of these things, these spiritual disciplines are actually acts of warfare against the flesh and the world and the devil that would speak these lies to you about yourself. They are things that you can do. But it's got to be at the heart, not just the things you do. So I'm going to invite you. Why don't you stand with me? Let's just take a moment to invite the Holy Spirit, just like I shared um, how I'd had that time when the Holy Spirit said, mmm, the pantry. You're not letting me in there. It's in these times of response that often the Holy Spirit puts His finger on, where is it for you? And don't don't start thinking about, oh gosh, wish He was listening to this message. Don't nudge your neighbour. Let the Holy Spirit nudge you. So let's just take a moment to pray. Oh, Father God, we are so grateful for your grace to us. Lord, that 
So many times, God, our offerings to you of our time, of our talents, and of our treasure have been token. And God, we're sorry about that. God, we're so easily distracted. We're so easily led astray. Father, forgive us. And God, we thank you for your grace, Lord, that there, even when we stuff up majorly like Cain did, Lord, there is always an invitation back to relationship with you. And Father, I ask that for each one of us, you would, by your Spirit, target the root in our hearts. Lord, you're not so concerned about what's on the surface. You're not so concerned about how much money we tithe or how much time we give to a thing. You're concerned about the state of our hearts. Because it's only, Lord, when we're depending on you, Lord, that we are are able to really enter into your power and to be close to you. So, Father, just now we invite you to, to put your finger on something for us in each of our hearts. Oh, Lord, we thank you that it's not what we have within ourselves or in our stockpile that determines how our lives are going to go. But it's your goodness to us. Before I hand back over to um, Pastor Dave, I just want to give an opportunity for people to respond. Um, maybe that looks like making a decision to follow Jesus, or maybe that looks like making a recommitment where you would go, mm, I, I'm a Christian, but I haven't really been living like that. And I, I, I want to give my life again to follow him. I've been trying to live like I've got it by myself. Like I've got what it takes trying to rule over things myself, but I want to actually give my whole life to him again. And it seems like when you think of it from the world's perspective, that giving your life over to God and surrender is giving up your freedoms. Well, I won't be able to do this and that and this, but actually it's the pathway to freedom. So is anyone today who wants to make their decision? To do that, you just give me a wee wave and that would let me know that I'm going to anyone who wants to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time? You know it's you because your heart is like, oh, I see nothing. Was anyone who wants to recommit themselves to God? 